And now I invite you to turn with me to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, this is what is known as one of the pastoral letters of the Apostle Paul. It was written to the disciple Titus, whom Paul had left on the Isle of Crete, and Paul was to establish churches along that isle and install elders there, and Paul is giving him instruction about the installation of those elders and the establishment of those churches and how those churches are to function. And we want to look in part this morning, we won't look at it nearly in its entirety, there's just too much, but want to look in part at chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Titus 2, 1 through 8. Let me read it, and then we'll pray. Paul to Titus says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having, having nothing bad to say about us. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather, to be with your people, to delight in worship, to delight in Christ our Savior, to remember his coming in a few moments, to remember his death and resurrection, to remember the hope of glory that lies ahead of us, to remember his saving work in our lives, to remember the provision of the Spirit of God and the Spirit's sanctification through the Word of God. To enjoy the fellowship of others who are being justified and sanctified in the same way that we are. And to share with hopeful, confident expectation of what lies ahead for us. Father, you are astoundingly benevolent to a weak and broken people. And we thank you. We thank you that you use weak and broken people to accomplish your purposes. We are astounded that you would use people like us to care for your people. Might we gain wisdom in how we might accomplish that. And might you be glorified as we think on these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When the Lord revealed plans for leaders in his church, he did exactly opposite what the world typically does. He called the church to identify leaders on the basis of character much more than competency. The world flips that around. They're interested in competency even at the expense of character. Listen to 
the attributes of those who would serve as elders as he articulates them, elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement, the apostle writes, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. Now listen, is he talking about in all of these attributes, character or competency? An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, not a new convert, so he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. All of those are character issues with the exception of one. He must be able to teach. Everything else is not about competency, but about character. And the same emphasis is found in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Peter 5 as In both those places, the Lord articulates again what leaders in the church are going to be like. And when God identifies not just what leaders are to be like in the church, but what every believer is to be like, to be mature, he again identifies character over ministry ability. He's interested in those who will cultivate the character and quality of Christ-likeness. Listen to what he says In Ephesians chapter 4, we read this just a few moments ago. Verse 1, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As he thinks about how the flock is going to care for one another, minister to one another, disciple one another, train one another, he thinks not of competency but character. Now, I'm not advocating incompetency. Don't hear that. But it is really clear that the Lord wants His people who will serve Him, who will disciple and train and equip to be people of particular kind of character. The emphasis is on growing the spiritual character of God's people. That has led one pastor to write, Character matters. Not so we look good, but so Christ is praised and so his church is made beautiful. God wants all his people to grow in Christ likeness, to go and grow in Christ like character. And that is particularly true of those who will train, disciple and equip others. And who are the people who equip and train and disciple others? You, every believer. And we say this all the time. Every believer is a counselor. Some of us give good counsel. Some of us give biblical counsel. And others of us give less than good and biblical counsel. But all of us are regularly counseling, discipling, training, equipping others from the little ones in our home to the little ones in our children's homes 
to those that we're rubbing shoulders with day by day. We're giving advice and we're guiding and directing. So this this relates to all of us. What will the character be like of those who will serve Christ? This year we're talking about equipping the saints. And as we finish up this year, we're thinking about our annual theme and just driving home the point of what will ministry look like through this body as we equip and and minister to one another. A few weeks ago, we talked about the goal of equipping. What, what's our goal in discipling and training and equipping? And And last week, we talked about the kind of people who equip. Who does God call into service in equipping the saints, those who are redeemed sinners, those who are weak and broken in themselves, but filled with the Spirit of God and enabled to serve Him. Today, we want to answer the question, what is the character of those who will serve as God's disciples and equippers? What are the standards of character for those who do the work of equipping? What are the biblical qualifications For those who will build up others. And what we're going to find in Titus chapter 2. We could have gone to a lot of different passages. But I've wanted to root our thinking in this brief series in the pastoral epistles. And so what we're going to find in Titus chapter 2 is simply this truth. That all of God's people are saved to serve him. Every one of you saved by Christ is then equipped to serve Christ. And you will serve him well when you exemplify his character. God is after transforming your character, shaping you into the likeness of Christ so that you can be equipped to serve and train others as well. I've already alluded to the fact that this passage is loaded with character qualities. We do not nearly have time to... Uh, pull out all of it. I think when I preached through Titus a number of years ago, many years ago now, uh, this was five sermons. You don't have time for that this morning because you didn't bring lunch. So we're going to condense this. But Paul speaks and addresses four particular categories of people. And I want to take one of the primary qualities that he talks about with each of those characters or categories and develop our thoughts around that. So we will find in this passage five characteristics of those who will equip others in the church body. Five characteristics, four around those age categories, and then one at the beginning that serves as the broad umbrella for all of them. The first characteristic, verse 1, equip others from healthy doctrine. Verse 1 serves as an overview of the entire passage And so Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, speaking to Titus directly, As for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. When Paul says to Titus, speak the things, the word speak refers to any kind of conversational speech. Typically, it's just used about conversing with one another. But Periodically, it is used in a much more particular way, and it's that particular means that I think Paul has in mind here. He's not just talking about speech in general as you're um, calling somebody or texting someone, but he's talking about particular speech that's done in the context of teaching. So he uses that 
For instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amid much opposition. There the speaking is not just conversation, but it's teaching and, and training and equipping, discipling. Similarly, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if anything I've but boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be in the truth. So we, we spoke to you, we taught, we discipled, we equipped. And I think he's using that word in the very same way here. Teach, not just speak, but teach in a purposeful manner. And what he is to teach purposefully is, he says, the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That is, they're fitting, they're suitable to, they're appropriate for sound doctrine. So Titus is being admonished to teach things that are distinguished and characterized as sound doctrine that would lead to a greater understanding, more understanding of the truth of God. And particularly, he's focused on this idea of sound doctrine. That word sound is also used in chapter 1 as he addresses the elders that he is able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Verse 13, uh, that's in opposition to those who aren't sound. So he says, uh, this testimony is true about the Cretans who were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely... Correct them so that they may be sound in faith. The goal is that they become sound. And that word sound is a word that means healthy. It's our word that, it's the word from which we get our word hygiene or hygienic. It's healthy. It's not diseased. And, and that, that word actually is just runs through the pastoral epistles. The verb is only used 12 times in the New Testament, and eight times it is used in these three letters. Paul is is advocating repeatedly and over and over, I need you to be sound, I want you to be healthy, I want you to be whole in every way. And we're going to see that again in verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound. That's our word, healthy, hygienic. And we find the adjective... In verse 8, speaking to Titus, that he is to be sound, healthy in speech, such that your speech is beyond reproach. This just permeates these letters. And notice the reason that Paul says that. So Paul says in verse 1, speak the things that that are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he articulates to multiple different groups how they are to be sound in their teaching. And then he gives the reason in verse 11. For, because, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. The reason he is to teach this way towards healthiness, towards doctrinal purity, is because of the gospel. So that the gospel is articulated in a truthful way so that the gospel isn't corrected because only the gospel and only doctrine can change people's lives. There is no spiritual health without doctrinal health and doctrinal purity. Doctrine and truth matters. 
If you get doctrine wrong, you will live wrongly. If you get doctrine right, you will live rightly. It's the doctrine that will shape and direct your life. And this is a reminder to us, even as the apostle says this to Titus in verse 1, it's a reminder to us that everyone has a theology. Now, if I walked up to you or walked up to somebody on the square this afternoon and said, what's your theology of life? I might get some blank stares. I don't know. I'm not a theologian. Oh, yes, you are. You are a theologian. And what you believe about God and life shapes everything you do. Show me your checkbook and I'll, if you still have a checkbook, show me your Quicken account. And I'll tell you your theology. I know your theology and you know my theology by the way you and I spend our money. Show me your Google calendar and I'll tell you your theology. Show me your relationships and I'll tell you your theology. Everyone has a theology. And what Paul is advocating for here is a healthy theology, a a pure theology, a a non-diseased theology so that they will live well and shape others well. And this, this provides the context for everything he's going to say from 2 through verses through verse 8. Whether you're an older man or a younger man, an older woman or a younger woman, if you want to help others, you must be shaped by, controlled by, guided by healthy doctrine yourself. You can't point people to healthy doctrine without having that shaped your own life as well. And to that end, every discipler's words should speak for God and his teaching should conform to God's truth. If you're going to disciple, or rather, when you disciple, your words should be shaped, guided, controlled by doctrinal purity. And to that end as well, every discipler should be known for studying the Word of God, for knowing the Word of God, and having that shape his own life and heart. Listen to what Paul says in another one of these letters, this one to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. And there he pairs life and doctrine. Pay close attention to what you do and what you believe. They're paired. And then he says, persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and and for those who hear you. You will give credibility to the message you preach when your own life is shaped by the doctrine you preach. So having confirmed... Titus' general duty to the church be shaped by this healthy doctrine. Paul now gives direction on what he is to teach to the specific groups of the church and then how they should shape and teach others as well. And there are lots of character qualities in these verses. We do not have time to look at all of it. So I've taken a little editorial license and tried to pick out the things that I thought dominated those sections and guided those sections. Second character quality for equippers. Notice this in verse 2. Equip others with your self-control. Equip others with self-control. Older men, he says, are to be 
temperate, temperate. Older men, who's he talking to? I'm sorry to break this to some of you guys. I've been here for a while. I've embraced it. It's okay. The water's fine. Jump in. If you're over 40, join me in the pool. That's who he's talking to. 40 and up. Um, So the bar's set kind of low age-wise, I know. But that's who he has in mind as he's thinking about older men. And he says, these who are older, these who are mature, these who are the elders in age ought to be temperate. That word literally means sober. It refers to, to one physiologically who is not a drunk. But it means far more than that. He's not just saying, don't be a drunk. He is also using the word figuratively, which is how the word is often used in the New Testament. It refers to people who are sober-minded. That is, they are clear-headed. They're not given to any excess in any area of their lives. They're able to say no with their minds and their actions when their bodies and the flesh are saying yes. Thursday Thanksgiving dinner excluded, of course. The word refers to a well-ordered life. Everything is in its place where it should be. To be temperate, or my word, to be self-controlled, refers to a governing of his, his own desires. And then with that control, there's also an alertness. He's watching for trouble. To say that someone is under self-control means that he understands that there is a battle with the flesh and he is regularly battling that flesh and he is aware of where the temptations are coming from and he is on alert watching for them, attentive to them and vigorously fighting against them. He's always vigilant. He's not in bondage to the desires of the flesh. Always alert, always watching, anything, looking for anything that might divert him from obedience to Christ. Remember when you learned how to drive? If you're over 40, maybe you've got to stretch a little bit. I mean, it's decades ago, right? But remember how you learned to drive, right? And all the manuals said, hands at 10 and 2. And, uh, and you know, always be checking your mirrors. I don't remember how often they said to check the mirrors, but you know, your mind, your eyes ought to constantly be going, what's in front of you, what's behind you, what's beside you, right? And you're always aware, all the cars, everywhere they are, hands on the, hands on the steering wheel, right? Now, four and a half decades later, for some of us, how do you drive? One thumb at six o'clock, radio blaring, iPod blaring, on the phone, eating a sandwich, sometimes signaling, You laugh. That's pretty much the way I drive. (laughs) What's the problem with that? Not alert. Not watching. Not attentive. Not sober to the dangers that are out there. And brothers and sisters, there's a temptation in our later years to let down our guard spiritually. I've been in this situation before. I know what to do. Seen this a hundred times before. It's like being on the interstate. How many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles have I logged on the interstate? I'm good. Seen this. I know. 
And we're just cruising down and saying, got it. And boom. You're blindsided. Because you're not sober. You're not attentive. MacArthur writes about this verse, as we grow grow older, change can become harder to accept. Life can become less fulfilling, less satisfying, more delusioning. It, it, It is easy to become a creature of habit, and the longer the habit is practiced, the more deeply entrenched and formidable it becomes, and besetting sins can become such an integral part of daily living that they cease to be recognized as sins at all. Not so for this older man. This older man is a mature discipler that even in his maturity, he's guarding and watching his heart. In his elderly years, he may not be able to control all of his physical functions, but he can control his spiritual heart and he is attentive to it. And this word suggests that the principles he is teaching others, he has tried out himself. He has appropriated them, been shaped by them, and transformed by them. And he can call others to spiritual maturity because it is evident that he is under control and that he is mature. He's taken it seriously. You want to equip others? What kind of character are we looking for? We're looking for people who are under self-control with healthy doctrine. Thirdly, equip others from and to love. And two weeks ago, we saw that the goal of ministry is to equip others to love. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that wasn't just theory. Paul wasn't just saying, you know, theoretically, if you ever happen to be in relationship with another person, you ought to love. No, no, no. It's a real goal with real implications. And in fact, we find that in this particular text as well. Notice verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. They ought to be healthy in the way they love. And not just our older men to be that way, but older women also are to be those who love and can, verse 4, encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. She can't teach what she doesn't herself have and can't teach what she herself doesn't model. So it's implied By the apostle that the older woman also must have love. And she teaches from that love other younger women as well. Why why is love so important? I don't know if you caught it as we were reading Ephesians chapter 4. But Ephesians chapter 4 is just saturated with the priority and purpose of love. We know 1 Corinthians 13. We read that a couple of weeks ago. We know 1 Timothy chapter 1 that I just alluded to. Paul's epistles are just saturated with the importance of love. And why is it so important? As you think about about all the one another's that are given in the New Testament, 58 one another's that we are commanded to do, how to care for one another. And by far, the dominant one is love one another. 
And why does he say love one another over and over and over and over and over again? Because it is so hard to love one another. Why does why does a woman need to be instructed to love her husband and love her children? Well, think about the context in which Paul's writing. In New Testament times, marriages were often arranged and they were done without the consent of the parties. In fact, they might not have even met each other until the wedding day. Well, how's that? Handshake. How do you do? Who are you? Oh, I'm your husband. No, None of this, you know, mystical, sappy falling in love of the 21st century that we have now. Though, no. They didn't marry because they were, quote unquote, in love. They married because it was their duty. And love then was learned. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't just say, I don't know how many times I read this before I, I, I noticed the last clause in the verse. Teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. I mean, isn't it natural for a woman to love her children? No. It's supernatural for her to love her children, but it's not natural. I mean, you you would want a woman to love her children. It's appropriate that she loves her children. But that, too, is learned. And brothers and sisters, just an aside, that's really hopeful. Because if love is learned, that means we can all learn how to do it. And when it's hard for you, In whatever difficult relationship you have. And we all have difficult relationships. We all have challenging relationships. And in those relationships you can learn to love. Now in our time. The context in which we live. Couples don't marry out of arrangement. But it's still true isn't it? The love is not natural. In fact, Don in Sunday school class this morning asked the question, how many of you when you got married really loved your husband or your wife? None of us did. Not not as we think, you know, years down the road, decades down the road, as we think about biblical love and what it was, what it is, we, we didn't love in that way. I will acknowledge I was infatuated when I got married. But love in the sacrificial sense, no. It it's still not natural. Self love is natural. But loving others and sacrificing for others is not natural. It's learned. Uh, Says one of my favorite commentators on the pastoral epistles, mature love is not an emotion that wells up, but a discipline that is worked up. That's helpful. It's learned. It's practiced. It's cultivated. So what does... A husband, excuse me, what does a wife's love for her children and husband look like? And how does that set a pattern for us? Well, let me just draw attention to four aspects of love that are implied in this passage. One is this, love is a choice. Love is a choice. Loving husband and loving children can be both taught and learned, which means it's not subject to emotional whims. It's possible every day, in spite of your emotions, in spite of how you feel in a moment, to get up in the morning and say, I will love her. Now, emotionally, I might not be there, but I am committed to her. I will sacrifice for her. I will care for her. 
I will fulfill my duty. And out of the fulfillment of my duty, I am trusting the Lord that the affections will follow. And brothers, that's really helpful because that's not just for husbands and wives, is it? It is for everyone in the body of Christ. We love because we want to love and we love because we choose to love. Some of you are taking notes. Let me say that again. We love because we want to love and we love because we choose to love. And that's that's true of wives. I mean, he's drawing attention to wives and moms here, but it's true of husbands, too, isn't it? I mean, that Ephesians 525 is in your Bibles like it is in mine. Right. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. So in the same way that Christ loved, lived for, died for the church, you live for your wife and care for her. And that's a choice. That's something we choose to do on a daily basis. Love is a choice. Secondly, love is unconditional. Why does a husband love his wife? Why does a wife love her husband? Why does a wife love her children? Because she's commanded to and she wants to be obedient to the Lord who commands her love. This command, as it's given in verse 4, to love husbands, to love children, doesn't have exceptions. The command to husbands in Ephesians 5 doesn't have exceptions. The multiple commands love one another has no exceptions. It's always loving. If a, if a woman waits for her child to selflessly love her before she loves the child, she's going to be waiting a long time, isn't she? And if you doubt that, if you say, oh, no, children love their mommies. OK, just withhold lunch for a while and see what happens this afternoon. Just saying, I'm, you know. And let's see how selflessly the child wants to love. No, a woman has to love with unconditional love. Because that's the only way that God is exemplified. That's how he's loved us. Without condition without anticipation of our love for him. Thirdly, love is for meeting the needs of others, not for having my needs met. Just put in parentheses there, you're familiar with the passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. Instead of the question, how can I get love? The question for young wives, for young husbands, for believers in the body of Christ is how can I give love? How can I love those who are hard to love? Biblically, it is essential to love, not to be loved. The world turns that on its head. The world says it's essential to be loved, not to love. And Christ says it's essential to love whether you are loved or not. And the hope of the passage is that we can learn to do that. And if we at Grace Bible Church are going to be effective in equipping others, it will be because we are effective in loving others and teaching others 
to love. We're doing that well. We have a reputation for that in the community. I have heard countless times about the spirit of this body and the tenderness with which you care for one another and the love that is expressed even from when people just walk in a first time and they tell me repeatedly, this place is different. To which the Apostle Paul says, we urge you brothers, as he thinks about loving one another, to excel still more. Yeah, we love well. But we are looking for those who will build others build into others out of this overflow of love. And we're seeking those who are excelling still more. So what kind of character are we looking for in equippers? Those who are healthy in their doctrine, who are self-controlled, who are lovers. Fourthly, who live in an exemplary manner. They have lives that are worth following and emulating. Verses 7 and 8. And we anticipate that as we think about those who will lead in the body of Christ, that leaders, elders, elderly will live in a way that is appropriate to imitate them. But notice he doesn't say that the elders are to be imitated or to they're to live in an exemplary manner. But notice what he says about the young men. Titus being one of those. Verse 7, he says, young men are to be sensible. And then he turns his attention to Titus in verse 7 and says, In all things you show yourself. And Titus was one of those guys that fits in this category of young men. And he says, You're to be an example of good deeds. Even Titus, as a young man, is to be exemplary. He is to be a model. He's to show himself, to, to model an exemplary kind of life. That word example is a is a word that was used to to refer to something that left a mark. So you take a hammer and you you hit a piece of iron with the hammer when it's been heated up and it leaves the mark, the imprint of the hammer. Right? It leaves an impression. It leaves a copy of what that hammer looked like. And the word came to refer to something that indicates a correspondence between the image and the reality. So in Titus's life, there's a, a direct correspondence between his life and biblical doctrine. He's modeling, showing himself, this is the way to go. And notice when he says, show, him, show yourself in verse 7, that's a present tense, which means that ought to be the consistent pattern of your life. Showing yourself is not something you just do once. Whew, now I'm done. No, no, no. Showing yourself to be exemplary is something that you do on a consistent, habitual, ongoing basis. This is your life. In what way ought you to be exemplary? Well, Paul identifies at least four things. One, he says, be an example of good deeds. Show yourself an example of good deeds. That is, his activities and his lifestyle correspond to his faith. A lot of times we get afraid around here. We want to uphold the purity of the doctrine of salvation. You know, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And, and we're not saved by works. And absolutely we want to hold high the Reformation truths and doctrine. But brothers and sisters, works are important. Not for salvation, but as an evidence that salvation has occurred. They flow out of salvation. 
And Paul affirms that here. You ought, to, you ought to be exemplifying the reality of your salvation through your good deeds, your good works. We ought to, as he will say in verse 10, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Every aspect of our lives ought to demonstrate the doctrine of God, the truth of God. Be an example of good deeds. Be an example of pure doctrine. Purity in doctrine, verse 7. So that what we believe is untainted by error or impurity or corruption. His teaching should not have any heresy or impurity. So that orthodoxy and orthopraxy, what we believe and what we do, go together hand in hand. And again, I've said it a couple of times, but right living comes from right doctrine. And he's so concerned about Timothy being a good, or Titus being a good example, and he emphasizes that that good example is going to come from the good doctrine. Don't deviate from the doctrine. Remember what Paul says to Timothy, the church is a pillar and support of the truth. We uphold the truth. Truth is essential. Truth is critical because it overflows into what we do. And when people are doing wrong things, the problem isn't just fix the wrong thing. You got to fix the motive and fix the, the belief system behind the motive. And so Paul says to, T- to Titus, watch your doctrine. Be pure in your doctrine so that you don't deviate in your example. Be an example of pure doctrine. Be an example of dignity. And the word dignified at the end of verse 7 refers to a reverence of life and a seriousness, holiness. He's morally careful. His conduct is decent and commands the respect of others. What's interesting here is we think about that in relation most often to older men, but here he says it's appropriate for younger men as well. And why is that important? It's important because a dignified older man began being dignified as a young man, and he cultivated that over a lifetime. And so here Paul is advocating, be dignified now so that you can be dignified later at the end. Flip that around and think about it the other way. Undignified young men become undignified old men. And that is an immense tragedy. So be an example of dignity. Lastly, be an example of healthy speech. We see that in verse 8. Again, healthy, sound hygienic, um, undiluted, uncorrupted, undiseased speech. What he says in everyday conversation should be healthy and correct. Not just healthy and correct, but he says beyond reproach. You can't be condemned or even accused for anything that he says. It's beyond reproach. The, the idea is more than his speech isn't inappropriate. Paul's saying his speech is fully appropriate. It's not just that he doesn't say the wrong thing. He says the right thing. He's building up. He's making healthy contribution to a relationship. He's purposeful and careful with his words. He says the right thing at the right time. What I want you to notice as Paul addresses Titus as one of these young men, 
that is, it just flies in the face of what our culture thinks about young men. Our culture anticipates that the teenage years will be wasted. And it embraces that. Frankly, it celebrates wasted teenage years. It looks forward to it, shrugs its shoulders and says, well, that, what do you expect? He's 18 years old. This is what Paul expects. This is what God expects. The Bible knows no such thing as wasted teenage years. Young people can and should live lives that are worth copying. If you're 14 years old this morning, this ought to be, this ought to be on your mind. Am I living in a way, not just that my 10-year-old brother can copy me, but that my dad can copy me? But that my dad looks at my life and says, something's out of whack in my life. I need to live that way. Yeah, I'm only 14 years old. Yeah, that's the point. You can live this way. Don't waste your youth. You only have one life to live. Make it worthwhile. I want you to note one more attribute. I want to kind of take all of this and dump it together in one big pot. Equip others. In every stage, in every status of life. Did you notice something about this passage? As Paul works through older men, older women, younger women, younger men, every age of life is accounted for. Which means wherever you are in life, you are fit and called to be a discipler and an equipper. If you're older, and some of us have been in that category for a while now, don't waste the wisdom and maturity that God has built into you over time. Invest it in other generations so that you will finish the race well and that you will help them to finish their race well. And if you're younger, Hear the admonition that Paul gives to Timothy. Don't let others look down on your youthfulness, but show yourself an example in your youthfulness that is worth emulating and copying. Not just every age is covered, but notice both genders are covered, both men and women. And while there are distinct roles in the body of Christ for men and women, he's saying men and women should both be involved in this process. There's no out. You can't say, well... I'm a 13-year-old girl. I can't. No, you're a 13-year-old girl is in here. Well, I'm a 92-year-old man. I'm out. No, you're in here. And everybody in between. Well, maybe you just don't have the socioeconomic status. Notice verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be, be well-pleasing and not argumentative, etc., whether you're a slave or a slave owner, whether you're an employee or an employer, whether you're low on the totem pole socioeconomically or high on the ladder, you invest yourself in others. Every social strata seemingly is covered in this. In every stage of life, Paul would have Titus and the churches in Crete and us thinking, How can I take the position in life in which I am today and redeem it for the care of others as well? Last week we noted 
that God uses weak, inadequate, redeemed sinners to accomplish His purposes. But our weakness and our inadequacy is not an excuse to not intentionally pursue helping others develop Christ-likeness in their lives. We may be weak, but the Spirit of God and the Word of God are strong. We may, be ensna- may have been ensnared by sin, but we have been liberated by the cross of Christ. We may still sin, but we can still live by the power of the Spirit. We may be inadequate, but God is adequate. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us pursue the character of Christ so that we will be useful to the Master. If anyone cleanses himself, Paul says to Timothy, from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Let us pursue Christ's character so that we can serve Christ's people. Father, thank you for reminders this morning of what you have given us in Christ, the blood, the cross, so that we ourselves can be shaped and so that we can minister to others and help others in their walk with Christ. Might we grow in that skill, not just skill and competency, but might we grow in character and quality so that as we serve our master, that we will be be figuring something that is worth emulating and worth discipling and worth passing on to others. And now, Father, as we think on those things, it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ's character. It's all about building Christ into others. Might we, as we come to the table now, give much thanks for the character of Christ and his work on the cross and his power over the grave and his ascension to your throne and his lordship over all. And might we find satisfaction as we remember him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.